given all the chaos that we have seen in our country this week, I have been asked and I've decided to agree to address some of these things from a biblical perspective. So therefore, this morning, we're moving away from our typical exposition um, where we've been going through 1 Corinthians, and I would like to look at a variety of passages this morning, some of which will be on the screen for you. I've entitled my discourse to you, The Supreme Court Bruhaha. I think in all of the years of my preaching, that's the first time I've had brouhaha in the title of a sermon. But somehow it was the first thing that came to mind. And I think it's fitting, given what we have seen. We've all witnessed this. We've seen the hired protesters. We've seen uh, the vile hyperbole and hysterics and hyperpartisanship, uh, just unprecedented hatred for this presidential appointee, and from the very day he was announced, uh, many of the leftist senators vowed that they would never affirm a strict constitutionalist as a judge on the Supreme Court. We've seen the frantic attempts to discredit this man with unproven sexual misconduct allegations. But what is really going on, especially from a biblical perspective? That's, that's what I'm concerned about. You know, is it really that we don't want a man serving who is a sexual predator and serial rapist? Or is it, as many top Senate Democrats have made clear, that he poses a threat to the reproductive rights of women, abortion, a woman's right to choose, which is really a euphemism for being able to legally murder your unborn child? Is it really about, as many would say, that 80% of the liberal agenda is typically forced upon American people through the judiciary, through courts, and they're worried that the balance of the court will now shift sufficiently that some of the special causes like Roe v. Wade might be threatened. And of course, the Supreme Court is the supreme ruling body of the country. So this is a threat to many people. We see courts, especially the Supreme Court, making laws according to political bias rather than applying the law according to the Constitution. Well, you can argue those things, and I'm not here to discuss politics even though I live here, I'm an American, and I love my country, and I'll vote my mind. Ultimately, I'm a citizen of another country, another kingdom, an eternal kingdom, and my king is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to look at these things from a biblical perspective. How should we view all of this? How should we respond to it? Um, and in order to do this, we must have a biblical worldview. And so I'm going to ramble a bit here and begin by reminding you that there are two opposing kingdoms in the world. There is the kingdom of God. There is the kingdom of Satan. I reminded you a few minutes ago in our time together that according to Colossians 1 and verse 13, that God has delivered the redeemed, believers, Christians. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So there are two opposing kingdoms, and I want you to see from the word of God that the politics surrounding this whole Supreme Court issue is merely one small part of a vast satanic conspiracy that has been going on since Satan entered the garden, a conspiracy to do all that he can to thwart the purposes of God. And clarity, I believe, regarding this issue will strengthen our faith. It will also give us a greater burden for the lost, and it will animate our resolve to persevere until the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, returns to judge the nations and establish his long-promised millennial kingdom on earth, which will be the consummating bridge between human history and the eternal state. 
So to accomplish what I want to share with you this morning, I want to give you just two very simple headings that we will, we will use as an overview. I want to, first of all, look at Satan's rule and secondly, God's judgment. So as we think about, number one, Satan's rule, I want to remind you that in 1 John 5 and verse 19, we are told that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world, John 12, 31. The world is the cosmos in the original language. It refers to orderly systems. The etymology of the word cosmetic comes from that, which means to make order out of chaos. No offense, ladies, but that's what happens, right? So Satan works in the context of orderly systems. That's how he opposes God, through educational institutions, through false religions. If you want to look for Satan, go to seminaries, go to churches, go to universities, go to government, go to media, go to the Supreme Court. Any philosophical or political movement or organization that he can use, he will use to influence human beings to somehow dishonor God. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, we read the God of this world, small g, referring to Satan, Paul says the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. In scripture, he is called our adversary, the devil. He is called the serpent. He is called, as I said, the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. He is called a murderer and the father of lies, a deceiver, the accuser of believers, the evil one, and on it goes. And all of these titles really betray the nefarious and malevolent nature of this diabolical creature that is supported by a vast army of highly organized demons. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, we read, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not, not against human beings, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And as we look at Satan's fiendish activities on earth down through the millennia, we see that most of them are covert. In fact, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8, that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And we know that he wages war specifically against the church. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 17 and other passages. We know, according to the Bible, that he is a master of disguise. He is a master counterfeiter. He is one that can make good appear to be evil and evil appear to be good. His lies are so attractive to fallen flesh that they sound better than the truth. He's able to elevate man's perceived wisdom and love of self to a place where people will actually worship the creature rather than the creator. In fact, the old reformers called Satan God's ape because Satan loves to mimic God by disguising the false to appear to be true and then luring sinners to himself and away from God. Satan especially loves to target believers with his fiery darts, as we read in Ephesians 6 and verse 16. You, dear friends, if you know Christ, you are one of his favorite targets. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And frankly, that's one of my great burdens for you here at Calvary Bible Church, because I know that some of you are being deceived. You're being led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I see this all the time. Not just in this church, but all around, all around the world. Satan tries to discredit us and to destroy our testimony. 
We know biblically that he will deceive and distract and discourage and divide and destroy, especially pastors and churches. Bottom line, his chief activity among believers is to cause us to think contrary to God's word and to live contrary to God's will. Scripture uses three words to describe how he typically functions. The first word is snare. It could be translated trap, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 7. This refers to the type of snare that a hunter would use to capture and then kill his prey. Second word that is used is designs, or it can be translated strategies. You see this in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11, for example. It refers to the, the, the battle plan a skilled military commander would use to accomplish his mission. And then the word schemes, Ephesians 6, verse 11. These are specific tactics that a military person would use to somehow outthink and outmaneuver the enemy. We are warned in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11 to put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, against the cunning deceptions, against the ingenious methods propagated through this evil world system in which we live. To be able to stand firm against all of the crafty, diabolical schemes carried out by his demonic hosts. The, the, the clever deceptions that appeal to fallen humanity. Deceptions in the realm of, of, of sexual immorality, false religions, ungodly philosophies, worldly enticements, and so forth. So, dear friends, wherever you see deception and dishonesty, hatred, slander, violence, irrational aggression, like we've seen in this whole Supreme Court thing, know that ultimately Satan is behind it. To think otherwise is unbiblical. We know that Satan targets all that is precious to God. And this is key to understanding what is happening in our politics and culture today. We know that God has ordained two institutions, the church and marriage. Both of them are to glorify God by worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to be the head of them both. So naturally, this is going to be Satan's primary targets, the church and marriage. When Christ is disregarded in either of those institutions, when he is replaced in a marriage or in a church, both are going to suffer and become a mockery of God's intended purpose. And given our limited time this morning, I want to focus on Satan's schemes regarding marriage more so than the church. And this is key to understanding the civil war in our country today. Bear in mind, dear friends, that marriage is to illustrate God's covenantal love to us through self-sacrifice. It is to be a picture of Christ's love for his bridal church. It is to be a picture of the loving headship of a husband and how he lovingly rules his family. A picture of how Christ's headship rules over his bride, the church. It's to be a picture of the joyful submission of a wife who enjoys the loving leadership of her husband, even as the church submits to Christ. And it is God's special gift to a man and to a woman to enjoy the blessings of physical intimacy and the privilege of enjoying God's gift of children, which fulfills God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and to raise children to love Christ now, what I've just said, I'm sure, is utterly reprehensible to many people. If you were to ask the protesters out on the Supreme Court steps, if you agree that marriage is to illustrate God's selfless sacrifice to his bridal church, what do you think the answer would be? You see, Satan's goal is to destroy marriage and to destroy the family the foundation of 
the foundational institutions of every society that is intended to bring glory to God. Now, how does he do this? Well, there are many ways. I'm just going to focus on two in particular. How does he destroy marriage and the family? Number one, through sexual immorality, especially homosexuality, lesbianism, this whole transgender issue. And then secondly, through abortion, which many feminists fear will be in jeopardy with this new Supreme Court justice. And Satan continues to, to use the Supreme Court to legalize both of these things. Think about it for a moment. Abortion. Think of abortion. This allows mothers to become murderers and to justify it under the heading of reproductive rights. A woman's right to choose. And so millions of helpless, innocent babies are brutally murdered. And what should be the safest place on earth a mother's womb. It's all about sexual freedom. If you get pregnant, no big deal, no problem, just kill the baby. What does God say about this? Think of the difference in his perspective. Biblically, personhood begins at conception. When all 23 of those chromosomes come together and the fertilized, in the fertilized egg that, that contains the fixed genetic structure of that human being, the DNA of that human being. When Isaac prayed for his barren wife, Rebekah, to have a child, we are told in Genesis 25, verse 21, and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And then it says the child struggled together within her. God referred to Jeremiah as a person before his birth. Jeremiah 1.5, God said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And for this reason, according to Exodus chapter 21, God protects the unborn. And in that passage in verses 20 through, 22 through 25, we read how there is punishment for a man who hits a pregnant woman and kills the baby. And if that happens, he must pay with his life. Numerous other passages indicate the, that personhood begins at conception. And yet in 1973, Roe v. Wade, the decision by the Supreme Court says that, a per, that person applies only at birth. And as a result, millions of non-persons have been aborted. This should be no surprise. In John 8, 44, Jesus said, Satan is a murderer from the beginning. He introduced sin into the world, and what's the wages of sin? It's death. Obviously, Satan and his followers need the Supreme Court to preserve this freedom, this woman's right to choose to have total sexual freedom so that if you do have an unwanted pregnancy, no big deal, you can just kill the baby. Satan also uses immorality to destroy, to destroy marriage and the family. Think about this for a moment. We know biblically that God created two sexes, only two, male and female. And he intended marriage to be between one man and one woman. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 19, So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is to be an indissoluble union between a man and a woman. Marriage is called the grace of life in 1 Peter 3, 7. In Proverbs 18, 22, we read, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Brothers, so many of us can say amen to that. As a male and female, God created us to be very different. Yet we were designed to complement and complete each other, not duplicate each other. Indeed, marriage provides the perfect context for godly masculinity and femininity to be manifested. Any other kind of union, God calls an abomination, a base inversion of his created order. And a violation of his moral order. And yet Satan wants to exalt all of this through sexual immorality. Especially homosexuality and gender confusion. 
and the Supreme Court has legalized homosexual marriage. They can even adopt children. I mean, think about it. There's really no, even, no need for marriage these days, even among two women. And if the two women want to have a baby, all they have to do is be artificially inseminated and they have their children. And now Satan has seduced human beings to even redefine gender. There are now anywhere from three to 112 different genders that are being announced. In fact, Facebook now offers 50 different gender identity options for new users. It's amazing. You ought to read it. It's just, it's just bizarre. I remember one young man that I know, he had an athletic scholarship to a university and on the first day, he was asked to, along with the rest of the students, to introduce himself. And the instructor said, the professor said, and tell us, quote, what pronoun you prefer us to use to address you. It's insane. Delusional. Why? Because it's satanic. In the state of Oregon, you only have to be 15 year old, years old to get a state-funded sex change operation without parental notification. Satan and his world system despises God's plan and purpose for marriage and for a family between a man and a woman. And folks, this is the very bedrock of a society. When marriage collapses, the family collapses. When families collapse, societies collapse. When societies collapse, nations collapse. When nations collapse, civilizations collapse. Where is all of this heading? It is heading ultimately for the rule of the Antichrist. Folks, there can be no social order apart from private virtue. And there can be no private virtue apart from the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. Now, all of this is part of Satan's schemes. Let me give you a little background here. Because none of this is really new. After God's perfect creation, we know that Satan tried to destroy all that God said was good, all that was perfect. And by the way, I won't get into all of this. Most of you already understand it, but God has allowed all of this hap to happen, ultimately to bring glory to himself. So we know that he tried to destroy everything that was good, including gender and marriage. We know that he immediately tempted Adam and Eve to sin, and suddenly their innocence was replaced with guilt and with shame. Genesis 3, 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see, even the gift of physical sexual intimacy was suddenly polluted, resulting in the need to cover their shame. And of course, of course, clothing became the universal expression of human modesty. And we're seeing that being removed systematically practically every month. But sexual perversion spread very rapidly at the, after the fall. In Genesis 4, we read about polygamy. In Genesis 6, you read about the demonic sexual perversion that led up to God's judgment in the universal flood. In Genesis 12, we read of adultery. Genesis 16, fornication. Chapter 19, incest and homosexuality. Chapter 34, rape. Chapter 38, prostitution. Chapter 39, sexual harassment. And God especially saw the sin of homosexuality as such an abomination that he would destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember in Genesis 19. People might say, well, why is that so bad? Well, God has made it clear why it's so bad. It's because it perverts God's design that marriage reflect Christ's relationship to the church. And it distorts the gospel picture that God intended for marriage to portray. You will recall that event in Sodom in Genesis 19. There were two angels that appeared as men. They were dispatched to save Lot and his family from the judgment of God that he was about to pour out upon that city. And there was a savage mob of inflamed homosexuals ruled by their passions 
that tried to assault them sexually. And even after being judicially blinded, the Bible says that they groped for the doorway of Lot's house to get to them. And because of this kind of lust, because of this kind of despicable behavior that God considers so perverse, he destroyed the entire city and the other cities around them with fire and brimstone. Probably some kind of a volcanic explosion. We're not real sure. There on the south side of the Dead Sea is where all of that happened. And the term sodomy is rooted in this incident and refers to homosexual behavior practiced by the sodomites. Later, Jude writes of, quote, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. And he says that they, quote, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. And Peter said in 2 Peter 2, verses 6 and 7, that Sodom and Gomorrah were characterized by, quote, the sensual conduct of the wicked and were therefore, quote, condemned to extinction. Folks, this is God's perspective. In fact, Scripture refers back to Sodom and Gomorrah over 20 times as an illustration and warning concerning what will happen to those who live such ungodly lives. I have friends that are homosexuals that I love, that I care for, that I witness to. They're not saved. And I've got other friends who were once homosexuals that are saved. And my, what a difference. Therein is the power of the gospel and the hope that we have in Christ. God calls it an abomination. And it is treated as morally equal to adultery, to incest, even to bestiality. Leviticus 18, verse 22, God says, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Verse 29, For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. In other words, they'd be put to death. Leviticus 20, verse 13, If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Ah, but man knows better, right? Man knows better. He has a different standard, a satanic standard. One legalized by the Supreme Court of the United States of America. This is just a sample of Satan's temporary rule over this world. We cannot understand this Supreme Court brouhaha apart from also understanding God's judgment. So here I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 1. Remember in Romans 1, the Apostle Paul warns about what happens to a man or a woman who rejects God's standard, rejects the truth of who he is. And replaces it with his own. In verse 18 of Romans 1, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They know it's there. They don't like it. They suppress it. And anybody that would dare take the pressure off and allow the truth to come forward will be met with violent aggression. He goes on in verses 22 through 32 to paint a vivid picture of what happens to a people, a man, a woman, a country that suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. When they reject God's revelation of himself in creation and conscience and his word and chooses instead to worship himself, bows down to idols made with his own hands, honors the creature rather than the creator and so forth. And bottom line, what we see in this passage that I'll go through briefly here in a moment, we see that when man rejects God, God rejects man. Notice in verse 24, therefore, God gave them over paradidomai in the original language, a very powerful verb meaning to deliver up. It's used in the New Testament to refer to one who is being given over into the hands of another to be judged, to be condemned, punished, scourged, tormented, put to death. And in this context is what we typically call the wrath of divine abandonment, whereby God delivers up a people 
He gives man over to the folly of his sin to experience the full consequences of his rebellion, of his iniquity. And folks, this is what we are witnessing in our country today. God have mercy on our grandchildren. Here Paul describes three stages of that abandonment. Found not necessarily in every individual, but certainly in the collective whole of a culture that magnifies wickedness. And each stage becomes progressively worse in evil and in consequence. Let me give you the three stages. He gave them over, number one, to sordid immorality, number two, to shameless homosexuality, and finally, to shocking depravity. And folks, all of this characterizes our country, and these things are even affirmed by our courts. First of all, he gave them over to sordid immorality, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. Lusts of their heart. The Greek term epithemia, the term for lust, it speaks of a desire or a craving. Here it refers to a carnal craving, a craving for that which is forbidden. And what will God rejectors crave? Impurity, he says. It could be translated uncleanness. In fact, it is a term that was, that, that was used to describe the, 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 the putrefaction of a corpse, the rot of a corpse, the contents of a grave, that which the Jews considered both physically as well as ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. But it also therefore became a synonym for sexual immorality. In fact, Paul used the term to refer to, to this, to, to sordid immorality in 2 Corinthians 12, 21. There he referred to the Corinthians as those who, quote, had sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they had practiced. So here we learn that when a man persistently rejects God, God eventually and gradually gives him over to this carnal craving, a carnal craving for forbidden kinds of sexual immorality. And notice this lust is in their hearts. The heart is the seat of thought. It is the place of the imaginations and the will. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 15, beginning in verse 19, that evil comes from within, not from without. He says, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are things which defile the man. And it's for this reason that Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 3, that the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Then notice the consequence in verse 24, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. You see, when people indulge in these kinds of sins, their bodies are dishonored. The, the term refers to, to, to treat something shamefully, to despise, to treat it with contempt. I've counseled especially young people who've contracted some sexually transmitted disease, typically on spring break. Many of these, these diseases are becoming increasingly virulent. Some of them are incurable. I've counseled people who are feeling guilt over abortions. They're struggling with single parenting. They're struggling with the trauma associated with relationships that were built on lust and not love. Violence against women, self-hatred that comes from being used and using others, the temptation of suicide and sometimes the actual result of it. I've seen prostitutes in their 30s that look like they're 70. This is what happens when you dishonor the body. I've dealt with homosexuals on a number of occasions who have contracted AIDS. And virtually all of them who have contracted some kind of parasitic or intestinal infection, who have other physical injuries that are completely unknown in the heterosexual population. 
men addicted I know that I've dealt with who have dishonored their bodies through pornography and they're caught in a vortex of, of, of lust from which they cannot free themselves. They increasingly hate themselves and others that know them. You realize that the size of the porn industry right now is $57 billion worldwide. Internet porn, it, it, about, it brings in about $2.5 billion. Child pornography, $3.0 billion. U.S. porn revenue exceeds the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC, about $6.2 billion. In fact, pornography revenue is larger than all the combined revenues of all professional football, baseball, and basketball franchises. Folks, if you don't see Satan involved in this, frankly, you're a fool. There are 4.2 million pornographic websites on the net today. And the average age of the first exposure to internet, internet to the internet is five years of age. You see, beloved, Satan is producing the next generation of people who are ruled by perverted sexual appetites. Our future pornographers and prostitutes and pimps and rapists and pedophiles and homosexuals and adulterers and fornicators. Man has suppressed the truth and bought a lie. And as a result, God has given him over to the lusts of his heart, to impurity. And they crave these unclean things like a junkie craves dope. Our culture has becoming has become more like prowling dogs and alley cats, utterly bereft of, of moral principles and dignity. You look around and you see women that are dressed like trollops. The more they can expose, the better. And you see men that undress them as they walk by. You know, nothing seems to cause people to blush anymore, right? No one seems to care. There's nothing sacred anymore, not even the sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman. Why is all of this? It's because God has lifted his restraint, his protection. Because man consistently has mocked him, and so he's allowing them to pursue their lusts. It begins with sordid immorality a perversion of the moral order, and it moves secondly to shameless homosexuality. And here you have an inversion of the physical order. Notice verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Degrading in the original language means vile. It means uh, disgraceful, shameful. In other words, God abandons them to vile affections. And then he says, for their women, or in the original language, literally females, for females exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. The term natural, fusikos, in the original language, refers to that which is inborn, that which is produced by nature, that which is governed by the instincts of nature. They exchange that function, or in other words, that use, the sexual use of a woman, for that which is unnatural. The word function there, the word use, refers to the normal uh, intimacy of sexual intercourse. They exchange that for something that is unnatural. In other words, something that is, that is contrary to nature, contrary to instincts that govern behavior. And obviously, this is speaking of homosexual behavior among women. And unlike sordid immorality, that is a perversion of God's intention for sexual relations, homosexuality, as I said, is an inversion of not only God's intentions, but, but also it, it, it violates nature that instinctively governs human behavior. Verse 27, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts. The term burned means to set on fire, to inflame. And it's also in the original language, it's in the passive voice, which indicates that they are set on fire by their desire. 
They become inflamed or consumed with a craving to become sexually involved with another man. And that explains, by the way, the sodomites of Genesis 19. You realize it's not at all uncommon for homosexual men to have over 300 partners per year. With women, it's usually one or two, maybe three partners. Folks, this is the power of the flesh. And this is what happens when God abandons him and lifts his hand of restraint. Verse 27, men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts, literally shameful acts. Folks, don't be deceived. Satan's goal is the utter elimination of marriage and the family. Even the distinctions between man, men and women. I am absolutely amazed as I look at the sissification of the American male today. It's astounding. And now the culture is embracing transvestites and the so-called transgendered. By the way, you know what God says about that? Let me read it to you in Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. A woman shall not wear man's clothing, or it could be translated as the King James says, or that which pertaineth unto a man. Nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. By the way, the Hebrew for the term clothing, man's clothing, is literally the apparatus of a man or the apparatus of a woman. It's, it's any, what he's saying here is anything that blurs the distinction between men and women is an abomination to God. Anything that violates the sanctity of this distinction, the distinction of the sexes established by God's creation of a man and a woman is an abomination. I would humbly ask you, if you were to ask the protesters in Washington, D.C., do you believe what this guy just said? You know what their response would be. It's because God has blinded them. He's given them over. And folks, were it not for God's grace, we'd be right there with them. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. By the way, that's the passive partner of the homosexual, the effeminate. I'll deal with this when we get to that text more, um, maybe even next week. It refers to transvestites, transsexuals, and so forth. Nor effeminate, or he says, nor homosexuals. That's the active partner. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And yet, folks, it is Satan's plan to promote all of this, to legitimize all of this. And he uses influential systems. He uses institutions like the Supreme Court, to fulfill his plan. In a homosexual marriage, there's no need for a father or a mother, right? And then what happens? Well, they adopt children. They're just raised by the community. The government basically becomes their ultimate ward, the educational system. It's interesting. Do you realize 50% of all children born in America today are born without married parents? So why even get married? Again, when man rejects God, God rejects man. He gives them over to sordid immorality, to shameless homosexuality, and then now, as we see today, finally, shocking depravity. This actually should be Number three, verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Depraved, a term that means worthless or useless. It was used, by the way, to describe worthless metals rejected by refiners due to their impurity. In other words, a mind that is just insane. It's just going to believe anything and everything. Think of the insanity of a man believing he's a woman. 
or a woman believing he's a man. And then other people agreeing with that. The insanity of condoning homosexuality and homosexual marriage and allowing them to have and adopt children. The insanity of allowing a woman to kill her unborn child. I mean, where does it end? And you just look at the protesters at the Supreme Court and... I mean, none of them would agree with anything that I've preached from the Word of God. They would be violently opposed to that. Why? Because they have no fear of God. Because they've been given over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. He says in verse 29, being filled with. In other words, their heart has no room for anything else to follow. Uh, in, in terms of the... the the, the list that he gives here it has no room for anything else but this list, being filled with unrighteousness, he says, refers to iniquity, a heart and a lifestyle that is consistently violating God's standards. Their heart is filled with wickedness. This is a synonym for unrighteousness. This describes those who actually enjoy evil. It's filled with greed. It could be translated covetousness or avarice and just having an insatiable appetite for more and more possessions never content never satisfied bent on gaining what they desire no matter how they can achieve it their their heart is filled with evil could be translated malice or cruelty this is a desire literally to injure other people that disagree with them they're unashamed when it comes to breaking the law their hearts are filled with with envy the term means to be filled literally with wanting what somebody else has to the point of you becoming angry over it. Being filled with murder, with strife, with deceit, with malice. By the way, that, that term is fascinating. It speaks of, of malignity, of, of a malicious and crafty person who loves to harm other people. Their hearts are filled with gossip. They are gossips, it says. This is a whisperer. The, the term carries the idea of a secret slanderer, one who vilifies others and then spreads rumors to harm them. And then he adds slanderers or backbiters. You see, this is a little different. What whisperers or gossips do in secret, the slanderer does in public and speaks loudly for all to hear. They are filled with, with, with hating of God. It says they are haters of God. I mean, this is the exceptionally impious and wicked person. A person who has excessive contempt for the God of the Bible. They are insolent, meaning they are violent aggressors. They are arrogant. In other words, they're proud. They're haughty. They consider themselves to be superior to others. They despise those who do not agree with them. They are boastful. They are inventors of evil. In other words, they delight themselves in finding new and creative ways to mock God. They're disobedient to parents. And think about that for a moment. If a child will not respect the authority of his parents, he'll not respect any authority. They are without understanding, he says. In other words, they're senseless. They're undiscerning. They're untrustworthy. They're covenant breakers, in other words. They're unloving. The King James translates that without natural affection. In other words, they're hard-hearted toward those who they should be affectionate towards, like their family. I mean, how else can you explain a woman killing her unborn infant? How else can you explain parents who abandon their children and abuse their children? A husband that could beat his wife or a father murdering his daughter and calling it an honor killing. Folks, that's just satanic. They're unmerciful, meaning they're cruel, they're ruthless. And then Paul adds this in verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God and those who practice such things, they are worthy that such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. How do they know it? Well, because God has revealed it to them in their conscience. Romans chapter 2, and verses 14 and 15. So my point with all of this is Satan provides every opportunity for this kind of 
depravity to manifest itself. This is what's going on. God has given America over to the wrath of divine abandonment. And in order to fulfill these things, he needs legislators. He needs the Supreme Court and other courts. Well, let me close just a couple minutes here. What should we do? What should our response do? What, what, what should it be, I should say? Well, Paul tells us, for example, in Ephesians 6 and verse 11, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We don't have time to go through the armor, but you remember what they are. You have to have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. We've got to wear the shoes of the gospel of peace, carry the shield of faith, wear the helmet of salvation, wield the sword of the spirit. And folks, bottom line, we need to love these people. We need to pray for these people. After describing these life-dominating sins, Paul reminds us of God's redeeming grace. In 1 Corinthians 6, 11, he says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So, folks, let's love these people, pray for them, unleash the gospel upon, upon them, and then, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And that visitation will either be a day of blessing for the redeemed or a day of judgment for the unredeemed. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths that we hold sacred because you hold them sacred, because you have revealed them to us. And Lord, we pray for those who are lost, those who have been given over, Lord, we know that it is only by your grace and your power that they can be redeemed. And we never know when they cross a line, but Lord, we pray that you will be merciful and compassionate and use us as instruments of righteousness to be salt and light. So we thank you, we praise you, and pray for our leaders, we pray for the lost. We pray for all of us that you might be honored in our lives for the glory of Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.